Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Verse 6, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once more, such as it is that we're gathered at home and here, that you would open your word to us. We don't have what we need in order to understand this on our own. We'll need your help to illuminate these things. And then when that is done, in order to obey what we've learned, we'll need your help again. We can't do that on our own. So we pray for the resolve to be obedient, the ability to do that in a long direction. Lord, we thank you for our church. We thank you for the church body. Thank you for the men and women and children that our Wake Chapel, a local church gathered under your name, your authority. And with open Bibles in our lap, would you be pleased to teach us today? And we ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's take uh, for purposes of, of not, not just review, but uh, to get a moving start. You know, there, there's always warm-ups whenever you get ready to do a workout or if uh, you're getting ready to cook something, you, you lay out your vegetables and you thaw your meat or whatever. There's, there's preparation. heard one professor in preaching say the, the whole thing involves a setting up of a scaffolding. You do your work and then you tear down the scaffolding. So let's, let's put the scaffold together. This will help bring chapter 6 in line with what we've learned in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. What we've seen so far from the very beginning with the birth of the church, chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's given, 3,000 souls are saved. That, that's a big day. The church is growing in leaps and bounds, quite a, a, an instantaneous growth spurt of sorts. But along with that birth, we've been reading more so about growth, growth since the birth began. And if we were looking at the end of Acts 2, Uh, Right before the end in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. So that's on the birthday, but there's also growth. Then uh, in verse uh, 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number that day, so still growing, by those who were being saved. Um, And then by the time you get to chapters 3 and 4, we start learning about problems within the church. It's not all just birthdays and, 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 and 
growth, but there's actually growing pains, more so than what we just read a moment ago. Chapter 4, Peter and John were imprisoned after being hauled into court. They're threatened, released, but being told not to preach in the name of Jesus. So what did they do with that problem? Well, in chapter 4, this is verse 31, and when they had prayed, this is after they were let go and they went back to where the other disciples were, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they were told not to, but they did it anyway. Then in chapter 5, we learned of the problem on the inside of the church. Those problems before were from the outside, the rulers uh, threatening them. This was a problem inside the church. A couple, Ananias and Sapphira, lied about the sale of their property. And it wasn't wrong for them to sell their property or to give it away or to keep it or to give a portion of it. It's just that they intended that the rest of the church thought they were more generous than they actually were. And as a result, we learned they dropped dead. You would think that that'd probably be an empty gathering the next week. But in verse 14, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Then at the end of chapter 5, where we left off last week, all the disciples are arrested again, not just a few, all of them, the twelve, and beaten for having crossed these rulers for the second time, ignoring the first warning. So what did they do? Well, at the end of what we read last week, verse, 50, verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So we put together this uh, running summary of the book of Acts that will suit us no matter where we are from here to the end of the book. And that was this. The book of Acts is all about the word of God going out as Jesus had commanded the Great Commission, and God bringing people in. As the word goes out, the church grows as people believe and are saved. And that's exactly what we've read so far. So let's think for a moment, ask a few questions, try to gather the pattern, if there is one, that we've seen from chapter 1 through to what we just read in chapter 6. First question, what is it that threatened the church? As far as uh, making a, a list of uh, assets and liabilities on a legal pad, dividing it in the middle and having two columns, what's threatening the church? Well, we read about persecution, legal action, intimidation, physical abuse. All that had to do with the Pharisees, Sadducees, known together as the Sanhedrin, the rulers, those responsible for the death of Christ, those who stirred up the mob to say, give us Barabbas. We learned last week the same group that, that said his blood be on us and our children. The ones that now think these apostles are trying to put the blood of Jesus on them. Um, it's a big problem. But that's outside. And then there was one problem inside, and that was sinful activity within the church. So they're threatened from within and without. But at this point, most of it seems to be coming from without. So that's the answer to the question, what has threatened the church? You'd put that as a liability. What about our assets? What's causing the church to grow? Because it's growing 
magnificently. Well, we've read of only one thing, and that is the preaching of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every time we see the problem, right after the problem, we see these phrases located at the bottom of the transition or the bottom of the chapter itself. And in the face of all the trouble from within or without, it says the same thing. The gospel keeps going out and God keeps bringing people in. The church is growing, but it's because of the preaching and teaching of the gospel. All right. In verse 1 of chapter 6 that we read a moment ago, we actually read over a second problem from inside the church. So we add another problem to the list on the liability side. And if you want to uh, make specific notes, here's what we're going to call this problem that we just read about in chapter 6. The uh, consensus of commentaries that I read in preparation for this would say maybe one word or another. Semantically, they're all similar, but it's, it's basically this. It's organizational and administrative confusion. You say, well, that sounds official, doesn't it? Organizational and administrative confusion. Well, basically, it just means that one hand didn't know what the other was doing such that widows and their needs fell through the crack. It's not a small problem. That's one of the problems that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. When God was telling his children how to handle things, widows and orphans were among those to make sure that they're okay because they don't have anyone to take care of them. So that's the problem, and the problem is actually in some ways worse than what we see on the surface if we do a little digging. But that's what we'll call it in an official capacity. Uh, They've got organizational problems. They've got administrative problems. But just like the other chapters and what we took pains to go through looking at all the issues and then what happened as a result. Just like all the others, you can add this to the same formula. In verse 1 of chapter 6, you've got the threat. There was a complaint by one group against another group because of a neglection in the daily distribution. That's the problem. But then go down to verse 7 after they worked it out. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So just like the other problem, it was handled, and the Great Commission went on. In other words, it didn't stop right here at chapter 6. I had a little footnote. Well, it was fun while it lasted, (laughs) but the church imploded on itself because they couldn't handle certain things. Well, this is just one example. This isn't as exciting as being hauled in by the Sanhedrin. It's not at all like what we were looking at last week, but I do believe that this type of problem is just as effectively used by the devil, and maybe more so. You be the judge, but you tell me. Isn't it the little things that can go unnoticed longer and maybe together compoundingly cause a greater problem that's caught late? I mean, you think about a a visit to the doctor where we wish you'd come in earlier. Well, maybe you didn't know, too. That's a lot different than, uh, you know, falling off of some type of thing you shouldn't 
uh, be riding at a certain age and stand up to know that your wrist is just broken. You, know, you don't really need to know, oh, I wonder if that's going to be a problem. No, it's, it's, it's good and broken. Well, you see that. It's on the surface. That's a big problem. It's urgent. It's important. But what about the not really important, not really urgent? Let's just keep on. We've got bigger fish to fry. That could be a problem. So let's talk about this organizational and administrative confusion illustrated by chapter 6 of the book of Acts. And for those of you who like this sort of thing, side note, this is a very interesting passage for those who would make their life's work the study of the Scriptures because this is one of the places that's a one-off in the whole Bible. You won't find a more specific example of a church having a real problem and how they handled it. Uh, I, I don't think I would value um, any more a third Timothy in the Scriptures where Paul said, Timothy, I forgot to tell you exactly how to govern your church. Here's how it works. It's not there. That's why you've got so many denominations that think that from this book they've got their way to run a church. There are many different ways. It's a wide berth, big lane, several lanes, as if God gives different people, different places, different times, the ability to work this out under an umbrella of character as defined by the two offices that are given to the church, deacons, which this may very well be the, the, the front runner of this example, and elders. But just as to how to put all the moving parts together and structure and who does what and when and how, it's not there. This is the, by far the most specific way we see a problem with detailed instruction about how the church, especially the apostles, took care of it. First thing we need to do, though, is to understand the local problem, what's actually here in this passage. Uh, the problem that these men and women in the first century early church had. And then if we can do that, I think we've got quite a good hope of having guidance that we need when it's our turn here and now to take care of problems within the church. Churches have problems. People have problems. We're sinners. It shouldn't surprise us. It's, it's not all bright and sunny days. So we need this. This is good stuff. Uh, in principle, a way, a means, guidance to approach in our ministry or any ministry in the like manner that we see here. All right, here's as simple as I know how to put this. Uh, pulled this from different places and I think have them in a logical order. But let's see if we can wrap our head around what happened in the wasness of this old book. And then we'll see how it fits the isness of our own situation here and now. First of all, what was the problem? Well, that's verse 1. The problem is defined. In the days where they were growing in number, that's an important detail because it makes keeping tabs on everyone all the more difficult. A complaint by the Hellenists, that's one group, arose against the Hebrews, that's another group, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The big difference between the the Hellenists and the Hebrews, is not that they were Jewish. We have good indication that they were all Jewish. But because of what's called the diaspora, you know, there were periods of history where the, the Hebrews were scattered. Well, some of them came back once Rome had established a 
worldwide peace, the Pax Romana. So you've got Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews. And probably their language was just the starting point for the difference between these groups of people. One had lived there, were born there, had always been there, and then others had gone away generations before and had come in. So for all intents and purposes, they're very new to the place, perhaps. So they got a, they've got maybe more differences than they have similarities. And it's the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, who are raising the complaint against the Hebrews, and it's because the Hellenist widows are being neglected, but not necessarily the Hebrew widows. There's nothing in here that says that this was on purpose or done for any wrong reasons intentionally. That could have been corrected in the passage if that were so. But we're not told, so we can't, we can't make but so strong a point when we don't have that point to make. But that was the problem. Second, what did they do in response to the problem? Verse 2, the 12, that's uh, the disciples minus Judas who hung himself and replaced by uh, Matthias. We learned that in chapter 1. And the full number of disciples, that's who they summoned. So they have a big, huge meeting. And some would say the full number of the disciples would be the 70 we read about earlier or the 120 we read about earlier or maybe the whole church. That might be tough to find a place for thousands of people to gather. So it's probably one of these other previously named numbers. But they just blurted out, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Now, even that could sound inflammatory. Well, easy for you to say you're the ones that do this. Are you telling me you don't want to serve tables? Do you think that the serving of tables is beneath you? All different types of objections you could gather here. We'll save that later. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute or reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. That, that's a tall order. Good reputation, full of the Spirit, and have wisdom. And then we'll appoint them to handle this problem. But, in contrast, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Again, we'll come back to uh, why it's important that one group does one thing and another group does another thing, and how neither group could do both. So how was that received? Look at verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now, if there was a verse, again, to talk about that same group of people who dedicate their lives to the study of scriptures or have spent years or maybe decades or most of their life in uh, full-time Christian service, some of these verses, we must be honest and wonder, is that a typo? You're telling me that they all agreed? And then I thought, well, you know, I've been in business meetings where everybody seemed to agree for the business meeting, but give it a week. <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe, maybe that's what this is. But it, you look at it and say, well, good grief, they all agreed on it. Either it was a fantastic idea or the Spirit of the Lord is giving them a spirit of unity. But wouldn't you agree that it's tough even in your own home? What do you want for dinner to get a consensus where they all agree and are pleased? But that's what it says happened here. So how did they go about what they all agreed on? 
rest of verse 5, and they chose Stephen. We'll see him in the next chapter. He's going to be the first martyr, tragically. And then six other men. Verse 6, these they set before the apostles, they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. Talk about that laying on of hands here in a moment, too. But so far, what was the problem? Well, an oversight. What did they do? Well, they got together and they talked it out. How was it received? What they decided was, was pleasing to the whole group. How did they go about it? They went ahead and chose, named seven men. And what was the result? Verse 7, we've already read this. The word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied. Even a great many of the priests became obedient. That was more than we've heard so far. For a priest who is the epitome of the Levitical system uh, to believe the gospel of Jesus is huge. So this is not hard to understand. And we thank Luke under inspiration for writing it out so concisely. So let's think our way through now what is having a handle on what was. And I'd like to use an old question to help us see what I think uh, is very clear. And that question is this. You may have heard of it before, or maybe this is just something we use in Bible school or seminary. The church itself, would you categorize that as a organization or an organism? There's a difference between the two. One has a lot closer of a network, ties, and limits, I suppose, than another. An organization or an organism. Now, the answer to this question is it's an organism. And that's explained to us over and over again through the New Testament by means of the illustration of the body of Christ, each with unique organs that serve the body in specific ways. A great way to think about it, if one of your organs goes wrong, the rest of your body suffers for it, except, of course, some of those organs that uh, the doctors say we don't need anyway. I don't believe that. I'm missing a few. My son here that drove, rode with me, he's missing one. Um, I, the ones that we can't figure out what they do, uh, perhaps it's what enables us to fly when we get to heaven. So hang on to those, if at all possible, rather than just uh, you know, giving them to the doctors. I asked one if I could take it home with me in case I needed it later. and They looked at me like you'd expect they'd look at a guy who's probably just succumbing to the anesthesia. At any rate, it's an organism. And think of it this way. In this passage, we don't just see one individual. We see a body of individuals. And within that body are all the organs necessary for their life and healthy life at that. They chose these men from among themselves. That isn't always the case. we got other places in Scripture where there are transplants. But in this case, it's all there. There were within this church body people quite capable of managing all its business enterprises. They manage their own business enterprises. They can do it for the church as well as they can do it for themselves. And there were people there equally capable of proclaiming the great message of the gospel, trained by none other than Jesus himself for three years. The problem was they seemed to be getting in each other's way, at least in one specific way. They weren't quite optimized. And I believe that it's only after we recognize any church, including this one, 
as an organism, a body with organs that God chose, put together for functioning correctly, we're probably going to be behind our organizational optimism that we could have. So uh, it's not surprising that we, we, we wouldn't have what we need on an individual basis. And even in the prayer this morning, we don't have what it takes to understand this nor obey it. We've got to have the Spirit as well. So it's not just in and among ourselves, but with the Holy Spirit, we've got what we need. Or the Lord wouldn't have left us to do His job of the Great Commission if we didn't. So let's think through uh, the order of events so far, but in a way where we're looking at those events and how it might play over into what we do as a church. Uh, The church was growing in Acts, and we already answered the question why they were growing, because of the preaching of the gospel. And as people were being saved, the church was growing in numbers, that's what it tells us. And it follows that as it grew in numbers, it grew in need. Uh, I like to use my family as an illustration, not only because it helps me think through things, but I'm figuring it helps you as well. But when it was just the two of us, myself and my wife, Corey, we had certain needs, had a little paycheck. It it worked most of the time. Um, We had family. I think we ate it her parents a couple nights a week and we ate at my parents a couple nights a week and then we just decide, okay, whose house can we eat at the other couple nights a week? <laughs> but there's a certain amount of needs we had and then all of a sudden there's this big surprise. I'm sitting on my drum set with headphones on, wearing them out and Corey hands me this little thing. Pull off the headphones. What does this mean? It means there are three of us now. And that, that was, was the best thing that ever happened to us. But everything changed. And all the stuff that we didn't feel at all qualified to do in the nine months lead time you have, the Lord just kind of, I don't know, I think it has to do with, with uh, just the way he created us. I just watched in amazement at what happens uh, to, to my wife and, and how metabolically the Lord just takes care of so many things. And then there was two children. Michael came not long after that. And it felt like one, two, well, one plus one is two. It's about twice the problem. But then the third one felt more like the, the graph was going not linear but exponential. Uh, three kids in diapers at one time. My goodness. It's, it's, it's a mess. Ben was a little later down the road, but obvious to this point, as the family grew, it grew in diversity and it grew in complexity. Not any two of those four kids are the same. They're each their own. I have to talk to them differently. Uh, they like to eat different things. They like to wear different clothes. One size doesn't fit them all. I wish it did, but I'm glad it's not. But 
is the church any different if you've got people coming in? If, 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 and, and it's always the same as a family. You're saying goodbye to people. But if they're more coming in than are going home, then you're growing in diversity and you're growing in uh, complexity. Things get more complicated. There's more problems that occur naturally that you didn't even know. It's like the way when you set up an, a, a house or move in with your bride and you find out that uh, dust collects while you're both at work when nobody's doing anything. Things get dirty. Cars break down. Churches have needs. It's not rocket science. So all new conditions of life demand new arrangements, new thought, new care instructions. It's the same when anyone brings home a baby. There's one other thing I thought about that might be helpful because even those illustrations, you're talking about your family. I know other couples and families who've adopted into their family. So they have children they brought into the world and children that others brought into the world that they've adopted from a bad situation. That's even different. Uh, Maybe my first introduction to being around people that were different than myself or had different last names was when I went off to Word of Life Bible Institute in Hudson, Florida. That's the first place I went after high school. And it's the first place I think I spent away from home for more than about a week. Been to camp. That almost doesn't count. So this was for real. My sister is 18 months behind me. She went too uh, because she skipped up a grade and I was born in September so we were a grade apart but now we're the same grade. We both leave the house and we wind up in Hudson, Florida two weeks early because for some reason they thought we were candidates for uh, RAs. You know what an RA is? They're in charge of a dorm. I guess because we were pastor's kids. So over the first two weeks when nobody else were there other than the other RA candidates... Uh, they made their selections, and I didn't get picked. And I thank the Lord every day after that that I didn't get picked. My sister got picked. That was rough. You're the ones. <laughs> you watch movies about these people, you know. The, do- the dorm looks at you as one of them, but you've got these people that are one of those, and they're telling you to treat the ones in your dorm like you're different than them too. It's, it's an awful thing. At any rate, we spent... Let's see. It was in in quarters, not semesters. It was an entire year from when we were dropped off in late August to when we went home on Christmas break. There's three, a little more than three months worth of time for me and my sister and 80-some people that we'd never met before. Um, My roommate would have a guy from Lakeland, Florida. He's my brother-in-law now. didn't know that then. Um... Also had a guy from Canada, a guy from Fresno, Florida, and a guy from Papua New Guinea, a missionary's kid. That's pretty diverse. And we're stuck in there. We get to know each other, and it's great. And we got really tight, close-knit as a family until we all get back from Christmas vacation. And there's something that Word of Life calls January students. January students went to Word of Life in Scroon Lake. It's been having a Bible Institute for years and years and years. And they'd always send a a group of a few dozen of them down to Florida to try to try out whether or not this would work as as a school too. It did, but they kept doing that after this first year. So you've got about a couple dozen or three 
Every dorm got an extra person after the original four or five had three months lead on them. It was rough. Who are these people? They're all from up north. I actually heard somebody say, I'm sick of all these Yankees. Let's send them back to where they came from. And of course, even then, I'm getting used to observing human behavior, but when they had ideas, none of us wanted to hear about them. What do you know? You just got here. We've been here for three months. We know it all now. We know how we like to do things, and the way you do them up there is a lot different than the way we do them down here, so just put up with it. It's our place. Is that the correct way? No. And I think leadership knew the whole thing. I think they do it on purpose. Just to agitate and disrupt what we quickly want to say is mine. Now, fast forward the clock to the end of the year. Some of those January students stayed because they liked it. Some of them went back. Some of them I I still talk to on a somewhat regular basis. Went to Liberty University with some of them. They've become good friends. What we had was what God saw we needed. It was school. It wasn't a church. But I learned invaluable lessons there. Uh, That the Lord's the original networker. And he can work these things out. So as a church grows, brings people in. People that, you know, just got here. Which are looked at different than people who have been here for a long time. Or even medium amount of time. Or even as less as three months or three years. Where you think, I've been here long enough to know better than you. Maybe so, maybe not. Well, let's look at what they did do. Church is growing. A lot of new babies. Babies have needs. So how did they meet those needs? Well, from what we learned and what we should do ourselves, first they admitted the problem. The 12 summoned the full number and said, the problem is that we can't stop preaching the word and we don't have what it takes to serve the tables. I think that's probably the best way to phrase that. We, 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 the one thing that Jesus looked into 12 men, the eyes of 12 men. There are only 12 men on the planet that Jesus actually looked in the eyes of and said, you will be my witnesses. Here's what you do. You go, you start here, then you go to Judea, then Samaria, then the other most parts of the world. You'll teach other people who'll teach other people and it'll spread. But you're the ones to do it. You're the ones to write the New Testament. You're the ones that saw this with your eyes, heard it with your ears. You are my witnesses. How can these 12 Stop that because something else has gotten in the way. It wouldn't be right. Absolutely it wouldn't be right. But the idea of serving tables, is that any less commanded of Scripture? Do you get to say, well, because, you know, he gave me a a pass on the uh, hill there when he sent it into heaven... So, uh, Jaws' problem, you, you work it out. No, it's still a valid concern. You've got to take care of these. It's commanded in Scripture. So, we're going to need to find some men qualified, full of the Holy Spirit, etc. So, number two, after they admitted the problem, they delegated authority. That's the hard part. It's tough to want to do that. Anybody who's ever worked with anybody else 
for a paycheck and there's a certain amount of things to get done and it's given to you to actually decide how to get from point A to point B. And especially in a training situation because that's when it gets tough where it might take you two minutes to do the thing yourself. It might take you two hours to train somebody else but you might not have the two hours that day so you put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off. What is it? How does it say? Teach somebody to fish. They can eat for a lifetime or you just catch them a fish and you're feeding them for a lifetime if you do it for them. You all know that stuff. But the problem is there's only so much any one person can do. God made us limited beings, gave us 24 hours. We all have the same paycheck if time is money, 24 hours. The book, uh, I think the title was um, Getting By on 24 Hours a Day. It was kind of a, a book that was off of getting by on so and such money. Um, and that almost seems goofy. We all get by on 24 hours a day. It's just some of us are crazy at the end of it and others maybe not so much. But you've, you've got to first understand you can cram too much into your schedule, but sometimes the important stuff gets pushed out and it doesn't get done. There's important and there's urgent those are two different things. If something's important and urgent, put that at the top of the list. If it's important, well, you can't put that at the bottom, or maybe you can, but don't take it off. If it's urgent, it might need to be looked at, but something that's urgent might not be important. And because it's urgent and not important, it might go to the top of the list. Well, something important just got kicked off. Not in every equation, but it can be that way. So they delegated authority. They chose from among themselves qualified men. And there's actually a couple of points we could say about this second point. They delegated authority. How? Did you notice? I only read the names once. But if you know the difference between Greek and Hebrew, those are all Greek names. Those seven men they chose were all Greek names. Whose widows were being neglected? Greek-speaking Jews. Now, we can't say this because it's not said, but it looks like they chose people who were closest to the issue, who might be better at it than they would be if they had the time to do it themselves. So it might actually be not a schedule thing, but a qualification thing as well. Also, they chose men who were qualified to do the work. That's overlapping points here, but I thought it worthy to mention Right here, they found them all within themselves. But if you read the book of Titus, we studied that first right out of the gate when you called me here, invited me here. Um, Paul sent Titus there to put in order what was out of order. Titus was qualified, and evidently on the Isle of Crete, they didn't have anybody qualified to put in order what was put in order. So Paul sent one. Paul pulled Timothy out of here, put him over there. Uh, there was a network of, of uh, certain positions that would uh, go to where they were needed. Certain, you, you get this. Certain ministries that just have bukus of people probably have a bigger talent pool to p- pull off certain things that smaller churches aren't able to do. It's a numbers type game. But the structure is still the same. Men close to the issue, men qualified to do the work, and then the last, under point number two, they empowered these men to do this work. 
Now this, a lot is said about laying on of hands. And should you do that with deacons? And are deacons here the same as what we see these seven? Are these seven the first diaconate? We don't know. Laying on of hands, can you replicate that? Is it different if you're not an apostle? Is that only it to begin with? Again, there's opinions as to how this works. But as far as what we've just read, think about that. The men who stood with Jesus on, on, on a hill and watched him ascend into heaven after having been given the Great Commission, these are the men that are going to lay their hands on these fellows who are going to take care of a problem that's threatening to split up the church. This is a tangible way for these 12 to say, these are the guys for the job. We're going to pray together, and then you're all going to know that these are the men because we're going to put our hands on them. They're qualified, full of the Holy Spirit, great reputations. But it was a way to confer authority so that there's no mix-up as to who's to do what. It's a way of organizing. It's a way of administrating. All right? They admitted the problem. They delegated authority. And then third, they knew their priorities and their God-given strengths. And this, I think, is the second leg of what they had said as to the problem. We'll find seven men, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Why was that their priority? Because Christ gave it to them. They added the word prayer at that part. They had watched this man go in the middle of the night to the Garden of Gethsemane and spend the night there. They had been there and fallen asleep. These were men who were acutely aware of the priorities that God left them with. Jesus, that is. So... Priority for these chosen men, take care of the widows. Priority for these men that God chose to speak and witness, speak and witness. Within the church, and I think this might be the most tangible, um, take this home. This is your, 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 your application for the passage. Within the church, there should never be a one-man band. I don't know if you've ever seen a one-man band. I've never seen a real... I've seen one on, on you know, TV. Um, you know, the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang contraption and all that. I've never seen one in person. I've seen some on YouTube. But that's where a guy's supposed to make the sound a full band would make, but he plays all the instruments himself. And there's no such thing as a one-man band that's going to compete with 101 strings, right? Uh, even if one man could play all 101 pieces. It's just not going to be the same. God didn't ever design for it to be that way. There may actually appear to be gifted people who can manage many strengths at once without massive weaknesses to offset them. Usually the more talented someone is, the greater the weakness on the other side of it. A lot of times that's the way it works, not every time. But I do not believe in God's kingdom there are any unicorns. Unicorns don't exist. When I say unicorn, it would be the pastor who's just as good at shepherding and managing and preaching and teaching and everything else that the man may be called on to do. They just don't exist. 
God gives us strengths and weaknesses so that we need each other like pieces of a puzzle to make the whole picture. We're never designed to work or to be required or even attempt. Most of the time it's an attempt on our part to do too much. To do too much. Um, And then the other thing that we all must be aware of, another application I see is strong here. From many angles, almost everything can at times seem more important than the word and prayer, even in your own devotional life. The best of Sunday school teachers, the best of pastors, struggle to make sure that they get their vitamins as far as their own personal devotions mixed in and among the hours spent that week putting together devotions for someone else. A sermon. You want to think, well, sermon building's the same as... No, it's not. It's different. Uh, volunteers that are good at what they do can work themselves into a position that they never know what it's like to be in this room. The rest of us. Because they're doing something else. And they might get a turn in here if someone took a turn over there. <laughs> you know, was it many hands make light work? And it always seems to be the church's curse that 10% of the people do 90% of the work. And that's the same in the business world, too. We, we don't want to act like that, but it's the truth. And it sometimes can be the same at home. But we should know better. And some of the things that bother us are our issues, or this needs to be addressed and handled... It might be important, it might be urgent, it might be both, but it's never more important than the Word of God. But it sure can absolutely cripple the church's use of the Word of God if it's not met and dealt with in a Christian way. I think that's very clear from what we've got here. So we're going to pray, and we're going to pray right from this passage of Scripture. I think what's, what's most clear that we admit our problems, delegate authority, and know our priorities. And if we can do that and do it well, I think what will happen here is what happened there. The Word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Acts chapter 6 and for Luke being careful to specifically write out a problem that could, if not dealt with, turn attitudes and hearts sour, wondering how in the world people who know the gospel can treat others or ignore them or forget about them altogether. Lord, would you help us to see where we're wrong? No church is perfect. Lord, would you give us what it takes to delegate, organize, administrate, for your glory and not our own or to do it easier. A lot of it's hard anyway. And then, Lord, we ask that that you would pray or that we would pray and continue to pray. Lord, that this would be real, that it wouldn't be just something that we manage like we manage so many other things that really don't have that big a deal in our lives. Our priorities are our lives. We are our priorities. And you must have the first spot. Lord, may the word of God 
be the thing that grows this place and not anything else. Anything else would be the wrong type of growth or a malignancy. Lord, grow this place like you grew your church in Acts. Be pleased to do so. Be pleased to use us. May we understand and obey what you've given us to know. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen.